Hi, so this is the uh, first podcast that I'm uh, recording today with uh, Jason Little. Uh, Jason is from Canada and is an expert coach on Lean and Agile. So we're going to discuss a couple of things related to Lean and Agile, but specifically to distributed work, distributed Agile. So maybe you can introduce yourself and then we'll get to some uh, discussions. Thanks, Hugo. Thanks for having me. So yes, I'm from Canada and uh, I started way back in the 90s as a developer um, and then got into project management and then into agile coaching and consulting. Um, I guess over the last three, four years, I've been spending more time in the change in the organizational development space. So trying to figure out how uh, organizations can um, move to more of a feedback-driven approach for change and move towards a stance of facilitating change versus trying to control it and manage it. Right. Let me jump right into that because what you know, I, I, I hear a lot about lean, agile, and, and a lot about change. To me, it often sounds like corporate talk and I can't really understand what's going on sometimes. So Maybe you can give a little insight into your view, view on like what, like if you, if you want to help a company change, mm -hmm. when do you apply lean? When do you apply agile? What's the difference between the two? Um, the funny thing is most of what is in agile and lean is taken from stuff that is pretty old anyway. So a lot of the ideas are, right. are, are repurposed and repackaged to be more relevant today. And it's interesting that the, the more traditional change in OD worlds are starting to look at Agile and Lean to figure out how can we use some of these practices to help us with change, um, which I think is pretty funny because all, they already know all this stuff. All the stuff that's in Agile and Lean was lifted from stuff they already know. So um, in one hand, some organizations are using it as a way to um, circumvent their existing governance processes. So they, they confuse the dictionary definition uh, of Agile with Agile, the method or framework or tools or whatever you want to call it. Right. So they're just looking for a, an easier way to be able to be adaptable. And they often confuse that with, if we're Agile, we can just change and do whatever we want whenever we want. And, and they kind of miss out on some of the discipline stuff. So um, I think as, you know, Agile's become more mainstream over the last couple of years, it's, it's a natural thing, but um, it, it's pretty interesting to see how it's uh, shaking out in the train, change world anyway. Right. And you also wrote a book about this topic, right? Specifically about lean change management. Yes. Can you tell so, a bit more? Yeah, the, uh, the book was um, a number of years ago, I did a, uh, uh, a video tutorial for Pearson education around uh, agile transformation. So a lot of the ideas started to just percolate way back when. And then the, uh, the book first uh, released it on lean pub, released it chapter by chapter to, to validate the ideas. And then um, the recent copy came out uh, just over a year ago. So it's inspired, um, I guess, by Jurgen Apollo's mojito method that taking ideas from many different disciplines is more effective than the individual ideas themselves. So um, it takes and repurposes and modernizes ideas from lean startup and OD and change management and agile um, and a bunch of other practices. And really the goal is to help organizations figure out what's the approach that's going to work best for okay. them because it's okay. so contextual. 
exactly. So you could actually, by reading your book, you would be able to understand which methods you could better best choose for your situation. That's yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. okay. Yeah. So in the preparation to this uh, podcast, we also discussed. Uh, distributed work a little bit and you present a few cases what what triggered me is that you spoke about a Lego speedboat game and I see that a lot of you know when I, I went to an event a couple of weeks back in uh, Berlin where they experimented with distributed Lego building inside the same uh, conference space so they, they, they divided the team into two parts I think three people upstairs and then three people downstairs they use a digital scrum board to coordinate the efforts and then together they had to build a Lego building. Mm -hmm. Why do we use Lego? And what you, you mentioned the case also about using Lego as a agile retrospective tool. So maybe you can tell a little bit more about why we would use Lego at all and how this worked in the Lego in the retrospective case. Sure. Um, so I'm a Lego serious play facilitator and uh, people often confuse Lego serious play with just sitting around playing with Lego. There's actually quite a bit of research and science behind why uh, Lego serious play works. And from what I've seen, the biggest benefit is that it really levels the playing field. So if you're, if you're co-located and you're in a room, it uh, doesn't matter if you're the CEO or if you're you know, a junior developer type of thing. When you are building metaphors and models with the Lego, the titles vanish. So one of the rules of Lego series play is that everyone participates. And right. uh, very quickly, you get people to be able to express ideas that they might have a problem um, verbalizing for whatever but reason. Aren't people just taking their normal roles inside that game? Because I did, in Berlin, they had a... Uh, the mushroom challenge, which we actually had to do in three teams uh, virtually. So we were allowed to speak for two minutes, mm -hmm. coordinate what tools we we're going to use, and then we could separate and try to do this game together. And then one, one, guy would, so one guy would just build the thing, and then the other two were in another room. But he told me that he showed me a TED video with people doing this uh, mushroom challenge in one room. And he said the main, like people or kids who just left kindergarten we're actually much faster uh, doing this and build better constructions than professional C, uh, you know, C-level mm -hmm. teams because they assume the roles. Mm -hmm. like, it surprised me that you say that people actually are kind of leveling out. See, that, that's the main difference between Lego Serious Play and just playing with Lego. So Lego Serious Play has a set of eight core rules that sets up those types of sessions um, that allow uh, the, the status threat with titles to, to dissipate. Um, so if it's an existing team, I think you'll notice that the existing team norms will override some of those rules yeah. if it's not framed well. Um, so that's what sounds like uh, happened in, in that event. Um, you're always going to have dominant personalities. Uh, yeah. And those types of Lego building exercises that I've seen in the Agile community, it's more here's the exercise, go do it. In Lego Serious Play, it's a facilitated conversation. So the facilitator um, is the one that is reinforcing those rules. So people are able to have deeper conversations without the worry of, um, oh, I can't really say this in front of the CEO type of thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 and tell us a bit about the um, distributed retrospective that you do, did with, with Lego. 
Okay. Um, so I did a, a session recently with uh, an organization and uh, they have the same impression. So uh, they say we have two people who are remote and they want to participate in this session and they have some quote unquote Legos that they can build with while they're there. Um, Lego series play actually there's, there's specialized kits that you use um, for it. So I kind of had to, to, to explain to them that it's not just, you know, just sitting here tinkering around with stuff. It's actually, we have to, uh, use the kits and create some meaning. So I shipped the kits out to these people. And then in the session, um, what we did is uh, we did a buddy system. So somebody would pair up with the remote person who was joining by iPad. And this was the first time I tried it. And I was surprised how well it worked. I thought the people on the iPad would be uh, lost completely because it does get really noisy in the room when people are building shared models and things like that. Uh, the interesting thing that happened is um, the the team that had a remote person on it spent more time, I guess, creating a team agreement or they created a way for how are we going to work together? So they did things like when they were building a team model and when you're in the room, everybody's got their hands on the model and they're building it. So they had to do things like uh, we're putting together, they would show the brick on the screen and we're putting this red one right. here, to signify this and what would you add to it here? So they had to do, they had to be a little more explicit with their communication. Right. But the cool thing was they agreed on the type of model that they wanted to build and then they actually virtually attached it. So the model in the room um, they held it up to the screen where the remote person on the iPad actually built the rest of the model. So they kind of virtually connected it through the screen. So the, uh, the so the, the setup was, there were several teams and one team did a distributor. Am I getting it yeah, right? Okay. They were, yeah, there were, it was one big team and then I split them into uh, four hmm. sub teams so they can each do an exercise and then we debrief and one of those groups had the remote person in it. Yeah. And was there any difference in the results? Um, I felt that the team that had the remote person was actually more well connected with each other wow. because they were forced into a situation where they had to create that mental closeness. Whereas the teams in the room were just like, well, whatever, we'll, we'll put it together. Yeah. And are you going to talk about it? Well, I don't know. I guess I'll say something. Well, maybe you should talk about it. But the team that had the remote person really, you could tell they just, they put a lot more effort into, um, building a team model with shared responsibility yeah, because they first have to think about how they're going to do it exactly yeah yeah and i thought the remote person would just be sort of well whatever you build is fine you're remote and you're just slowing us down so forget it but it was the opposite so i was right. i was really happy with the way that worked out that's interesting because that's actually because I, I run workshops where i also help teams to make their expectations and agreements explicit before they do the work because i see also when a company for example has a software team locally and they add a team remote in nearshore or offshore they sometimes just go with the flow they start building stuff the way they always did it and this doesn't always work very well so it's important to really think up front and i also see that the onshore team usually gets more structured because they have an offshore part of their team um, so it also helps as a benefit in structuring your work i feel so that's interesting that this experiment gave the same result yeah. What I what I was thinking about you you also uh, organize change workshops you uh, you told me um, one of the things that I was thinking about is that in a lot of cases we have clients in in Bridge and my other company where a CEO would say okay let's start a nearshore team and 
he decides this and tells the rest of his company, okay, now you guys go with it. And he assigns one Scrum Master or lead developer as the head for managing the remote team. Um, and this isn't always a good situation because you get resistance in the people who are sort of forced to work with a remote team. Um, how, how would you address such a change with your workshops? Because I, I, you, you mentioned it's about co-creating change, which seemed an interesting concept to me. Mm -hmm. So it's um, co-creating change is about involving the people who have to live with the consequences of that change in the design of it. So sometimes you're, you're stuck. Like in the situation you described, the CEO decides, hey, we're, we're going to outsource. This comes from the top down. You don't have a choice right. to do it. So the, the teams will have to do it, but they will have a choice in how that actually works. So specifically with the remote teams, um, mental closeness is the important part, not the physical closeness. Um, so uh, one thing is clarifying the commander's intent. So the CEO is putting this edict down that thou shalt work with this remote team, uh, clarify what the expectations are, clarify that uh, there's a tax for these types of decisions. So we need to spend more time and effort on creating that mental closeness and we need more time and effort on coordinating activities between the nearshore or offshore teams. Mm -hmm. Um, which is going to slow things down for a while until that team gels. Um, yeah, so maybe to add to that, to add to the fire, because one, I did a webinar this week about uh, cultural differences with India, and one of the participants said, you know, what I often hear from companies who work with India is, first of all, I don't understand their accents. Second of all, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my job. Uh, and third, I don't like them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, uh, that, that happens a lot. So how would you, mm -hmm. I mean, that adds to the problem, right? How, how would you deal with that? Um, in one case, one organization I worked with, they knew that they had a contract that they had to fulfill for a year. So it was, we just have to figure out how to make this work. And the way that they were able to do that was they actually had someone who, similar to what you described, was the person who was the offshore team wrangler. Um, and he would work with his team here all day. He'd go home, have dinner, maybe take a nap or something like that, and then be up at midnight kicking off the remote team. And you mentioned an offshore wrangler. What's that? What's that? That's new. It, 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 he, it, was his, he was, it was his responsibility to coordinate the, um, his team's work with the offshore team. Right. So he was the link between the two. So he would take whatever happened during the day with the, the team that was in the office there, and then he would set up the work for the people who were remote right. by helping kick them off at, you know, midnight or one in the morning or whatever it was when their start time was. So then, you know, he'd go to sleep around three o'clock in the morning and he'd wake up and he'd come back into the office and work with the, 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 his team, do the same thing, go home, take a little bit of a nap, get up at midnight, kick off the new team. Um, so teams find a way to make it work. I don't think that's very healthy way to approach that right. problem by having that one because you've got you've got the lottery factor right that guy wins the lottery and you now have no other connection another organization that i worked with they would actually fly out the uh, he was the team lead they would fly him to the offshore team right. um, every six months and he would spend a week out there working with the team but yeah. everyone else on his team was able to connect and work with this remote team as well so they did things like they did their stand-ups uh, very early in the morning. I think they did them around 8.30. So it was 8.30 at night for the remote team. 
So at least they had a connection with the other team. So it was really around the, the, the team in the building and the offshore team creating a working agreement. So what's the most effective way for us to work together? Yeah. We know that with the time delay, that responsiveness is going to be a problem. So there's going to be a two-day turnaround on any type of issue that happens. So they figured out how to deal with it by basically coming in um, extra early for the, the team in the building to do the stand-ups. And then the team who was remote, they would, you know, they'd go home, eat dinner, whatever, and then they would attend a virtual stand-up in the evening sometime. Right. Yeah. And I'm just thinking if your, your change workshop would help, for example, in preparing a team that goes offshore upfront, like around this time when the CEO makes his decision to implement a change. Yeah. My, my workshop would focus on having the conversation with the CEO around, so what is it about this uh, offshoring that you think makes it the right thing to do? So really right. question, question the answer in the first place. Like, and sometimes, like I said, the contract is signed, it's already done, you don't have a choice, then you just have to, the teams have to figure it out. But at least help the CEO explore the impact of that decision. Right. Because from my experience, they're usually looking at the bottom line and they're not realizing yeah, no, exactly. that a, a cheap, a cheap yeah. bottom line comes with a hundred percent rework <laughs> and okay. uh, communication overhead and tool overhead and, and, and that type of thing. So, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, another interesting thing that I saw, I saw that you posted a blog article a couple of days back. I think it was a guest author, but he wrote about, how lean coffee as a concept helped him to bridge cultural differences. So I was wondering, like, what, what's lean coffee? Because I heard about it before, but I think it's good if you explain. And how, how could this concept help in overcoming, like, not like cultural differences between two companies, but, you know, between two cultures, if you work with India, for example? Okay. Um, so lean coffee, it is, um, I guess, I call it a structured approach to unstructured meetings, I guess. So the participants in the meeting actually decide on the topics. At the start of the meeting, it'll be, there'll be some type of theme, uh, which is the, the purpose of why we're doing this Lean Coffee session. And then people will go ahead and write all their questions on sticky notes, what they want to have answered for that day. And then the group will dot vote. And so they dot vote. You give everyone two or three votes, whatever makes sense. And they okay. vote on the topics they want to talk about. Whatever one has the most votes is the one you talk about first. Then you, know, you set up a simple Kanban board, um, uh, you know, things to discuss, things we are discussing, things that are finished. And then you pull the first topic in, time box it. I usually use eight minutes. So we talk about that topic for eight minutes. And then as a group, we decide just with thumb voting. So do you want to keep talking about this? Put your right. thumb up. Do you, want to, do you want to move on to the next? Put your thumb down. And if you don't care either way, put your thumb sideways. Right. And if the group wants to continue to talk about it, we cut the time box in half. So we set another four minutes to discuss it and then go down to one minute and then it's done and we move it over. Um, and, and that process goes through whatever your time box for lean coffee is. Sometimes I'll do things like after one of the topics has been finished, then we'll look at the list of the other questions and say, what's different? Has anything changed since we talked about that one thing? And should we change our, our backlog, basically? So it's an easy way. It's, I found it to be the most effective way to move towards a co-creating change stance, which is basically me as the coach my opinion's largely irrelevant. I'm trying to elicit from the people what's the most important thing for them, and then they feel a sense of ownership. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So this lean coffee format could, for example, be used in an intercultural setting where ideally you try to bring them into one room and then address the topics that they feel could influence the distributed work between the cultures and then address those or discuss them in blocks of eight minutes. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. I've done it remotely as well. So uh, one organization that uh, was spread across three time zones and, and multiple locations, um, we would do lean coffee every week. So week number one, it would be the in-person one that we would do in the building. And then the second week would be the distributed one. So we are using a Microsoft Live Meeting to do this. And uh, people would log on to the whiteboard and they would type their questions in, and then there's a little icon button in, in live meeting that people would actually put a check mark beside the things they were voting for. And the, the interesting thing with that is you have to give everybody admin access to the board to do it. And on one occasion, we had all the questions erased because the erase button is right beside the checkbox button. <laughs> and when we would kick off Lean Coffee, we'd say, okay, you're going to vote by putting checkboxes. Remember the erase button's right beside it, so be careful when you click on it. And, um, of course, when it gets erased, there's the one naysayer that says, I told you that would happen. Right. And then we just ask people, all right, put your questions back up. And they remember. So the questions go back up within a few seconds. Um, and we did the same thing. We would time box the discussion, and then we'd strike off the question in the live meeting. So, um, you know, we would get probably 60 people on those lean coffee calls. Okay. Uh, and, and it works very, very well. The, uh, the post um, that, uh, that Brock uh, wrote um, described how his company was acquired. And they had to figure out how are they going to integrate a, a certain team. And he thought, well, Lean Coffee is the best way to do this. And if you look at any change management framework, um, especially Cotter's eight steps, he says, number one is create urgency. And the only way you create that is by open, honest dialogue. Um, that's lean coffee does that because it allows people to discuss things that are important to them. It, it's not, you know, some change person creates a newsletter and a SharePoint site and pushes it out. And like, there's our important topics. doesn't work that way. Right. Lean coffee really gets people um, to talk about the things that are, that are important to them. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. So I think, um, Interesting talks. What I'm just thinking about wrapping up. What? Uh, how can people get in touch with you? And do you have any any um, workshops or conferences planned in Europe? So uh, you can find out information about the workshops, the book, and everything else at leanchange.org. Okay. The next one's coming up, uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, in February, and then um, there is one in Vienna. Um, I believe at the end of February in okay. Austria and then Hamburg, Germany is coming up as well. And uh, likely Colombia as well, Bogota, um, Colombia. So, that sounds exciting. In the first quarter. So yeah, that should be pretty, pretty fun. There's um, 20 facilitators worldwide now. So hopefully there's going to be more opportunity for workshops because right. it's not just me running them anymore. It's people who have been through a course and um, are able to run their own as well. Okay, and those are people who are certified by you and they give the workshops locally in their area. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Great. What about your email address if somebody wants to drop you an email? Um, Jason at leanintuit, L-E-A-N-I-N-T-U-I-T.com is the best way to get in touch with me. Okay, sounds good. Thanks so much and uh, good luck with your stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay.
All right. 